I've asked Jack to come up and read, but he's not just going to read it. He's memorized Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, because the verses up on the screen, this is a good foundation for what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 14. So Jack, whenever you're ready, bud, would you like to do Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15? Okay, hold it close, and whenever you're ready, you say that for us, okay? Okay. Jesus came into Galilee. Proclaiming? Proclaiming the gospel of God, and he said, The time is fulfilled, and the, and the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> Repent? Repent and believe in the gospel. Fantastic, boy. You did a really great job. That was awesome. You did a good job. Man, I love that so much. That is so good. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thinking about the gospel of Mark, how it began with that, and then it's moved all the way to where we're going to be in chapter 14. As we're thinking about chapter 14, kids, those of you who are in the room, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, up through elementary, here's one thing I know about you kids. If you've got chicken nuggets on the plate, you know, or you're, you're getting ready to have lunch, and you're given the ketchup bottle or the ranch dressing bottle, and your parents or grandparents will say, hey, just put a little bit on there, like just, just a little bit, you know, just enough to, uh, to dip the chicken nuggets in. Here's what I know about you guys. You just take it and you just go to town. Like you're just filling the plate up with ketchup and, and ranch. And then what do your parents say to you in that moment? You better not waste that. Like <laughs> you, you better make sure you're dipping up all of that ranch dressing. You better make sure you're dipping up all of that ketchup. If you're going to put that on the plate, if you're going to put that out there, don't waste that. Because as adults, we're obsessed sometimes with not wasting things. Like, don't waste the ketchup. Don't waste the ranch. Don't waste the air conditioner. Make sure the doors are closed. And we're always worried about it. Don't waste electricity. Well, sometimes we do find ourselves wasting things, not always on purpose. When Amanda and I moved to New Orleans in 2005 to go to seminary, we were living in a little bitty seminary apartment off campus there in New Orleans. And we had gone to the store one day bought groceries, come home, and the next day we were looking in the refrigerator, and you remember those um, canisters of concentrated orange juice that you would buy in the freezer? You know, it was in the can, then you pop it open, pour it in the liquid, or the water, stir it around, you had orange juice. So we couldn't find our little concentrated orange juice. So we went out to the car, opened the trunk, well, there was the orange juice can canister in there. So we're like, oh, we found it, good news. So we brought it in, sat it on the table, the dining room table, walked away, and boom! That thing had been rolling around in the back of the uh, car for, for a day or two. It had built up pressure. I guess the temperature change, maybe, bring it into the apartment. That thing exploded, and orange juice went everywhere. <laughs> like, we're talking everywhere. Made a huge mess. And, and when you're young and poor and living in an apartment, your first thought is, oh my word, there goes the deposit. Like we've, we've completely, we completely lost the deposit. Now, not a few weeks after that, Hurricane Katrina comes through. 
and completely washes out our, our apartment. And in my grief afterward and thinking about it, I did have a moment of clarity. I guess I don't have to worry about the deposit now. <laughs> like, that's probably, probably taken care of. Like, I was so concerned about this orange juice, this orange juice that we had wasted. Well, then Katrina came along and just kind of washed, washed everything out. That word waste, we always worry, am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my time? Am I wasting my energy? What does it mean to waste something and invest something? What does it look like to truly live our lives in such a way that we don't waste them? Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Let's just start slowly. I want to build up the context a little bit here. We're going to get into this. It says at the beginning of Mark 14, we've now moved to the time that it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you're not familiar with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, let me just give you a really quick introduction to those things. Most likely, when it says it was now two days before the Passover, most likely we've reached Wednesday of Holy Week. There's debate about this, there's arguments about this, but most likely here at the beginning of Mark chapter 14, we've reached Wednesday of Holy Week leading up to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It's two days before Passover. Passover is that celebration from the Old Testament where we see the people of God are in Egypt and the plagues are coming and you get to that 10th plague where the firstborn son of every family is, is going to be taken out, is going to die. And if the people will put the blood over the doorway of their house, the angel of death will pass over. Will, will, and so God is providing an escape from evil, an escape from death, an escape from Egypt for his people. And at the same time, this idea that Passover led into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the reason that they would have unleavened bread is because it was a reminder of how fast they had to leave Egypt. And so it was a reminder of God rescuing them out of there and the urgency of getting away from a place of sin and death. Also, leaven was a symbol of sin. And so Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder of our call to be holy. So what you have going on here is the people are preparing for a celebration that would happen every year when they were reminded that God had rescued them from sin and death. If you get that idea, you'll get the background that's going on here. Every year, the people remembered that God had rescued them from sin and death that he had established them as his people, as his rescued, saved people, and this is all that's happening that's preparing for what's coming next. Now, what's going on in chapter 14? Well, break out the griddle, get ready for your peanut butter and jelly at, at lunch. We have another sandwich in Mark, okay? If you've been with us through this study of Mark, you know that Mark loves these sandwiches where he'll take two ideas, and then he'll put something else in the middle, and sometimes he'll add a third layer to the sandwich, okay? So now, now we're getting serious at this point, that we have these two outer layers, two interior later, layers, and then one thing at the core. So the chapter begins with a reference to Passover, rescue from sin and death. Then Mark is going to interrupt that story, and he'll come back around to it. In between... He has two examples of how people are turning against Jesus, and they're going to try to arrest Jesus and lead him to death. And then right at the middle is a story about devotion to Jesus. Now, here's the question. Other than just giving a preacher a chance to talk about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, like, why does Mark do this? Why, why does Mark use these sandwiches? It's because the pieces on the sides 
are supposed to help us make sense of what's happening in the middle. So what you have is you have a celebration of Passover. What's Passover all about? Being rescued from sin and death. You have an example in the middle of people that resist that. They, they don't have any interest in that. They're turned against the way of Jesus. And then you have an example at the very middle of what it means to truly experience Jesus' work in your life. What it truly means to devote yourself to Jesus. So look at the middle of verse 1. The middle of verse 1, after we know that Passover and, and the feast is coming, it says, And the chief priest... And the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. These big feasts like Passover, all the people would come into Jerusalem and they would get excited about what it means to be the Jewish people, what it means to be the people of God. And the Roman military, the governors, they were always scared there was going to be a nationalist uprising, that the people were going to try to turn against the Roman army. They were going to try to turn against their governors. And so they said, let's not cause trouble Why there are so many people in the city. Let's wait until after this time, and then we'll arrest Jesus. Well, we know it doesn't happen that way, but that was their plan. Okay, what happens in verse 3? In verse 3, it says, While he was at Bethany, while Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came. Okay, if you like to take notes, there's really two points this morning. There's, there's a one and a two. There's two suppers, two meals that you need to see in chapter 14 that help make sense of what's going on. The first supper that we're going to talk about, we are going to call the perfume mill, okay? And that'll make sense in a few minutes, but we're going to call it the perfume mill. What you have going on here is you have Jesus who is having a meal with outsiders. Now, teenagers, young adults, you may appreciate the fact that it looks like on Wednesday of Holy Week, Jesus is having a meal with outsiders. Just saying there, if that makes any sense to you, then you'll connect with that idea that here on Wednesday we have a meal with outsiders. What's going on here? He's at Bethany. He's outside the city. He's at the home of Simon the leper. Simon almost certainly was someone who had leprosy previously, but has been cured of that leprosy. But what do we know about lepers? They were, they were social outcasts. And we also know that he's here with this anonymous woman, this, this unnamed woman. So he's outside of Jerusalem. He's with someone who was associated with leprosy, and he's with this woman. He is purposefully having this meal with everybody who would be considered outside of the interior religious circle. He's having this meal with everybody who would be considered outside of power. Now, what's he going to do with this meal? Look what happens next. Middle of verse 3, what does this woman do? This woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Mark is just tripping over himself to talk about how expensive this ointment she has, okay? This goes way beyond your essential oils. Like, this is really, this is really, really valuable to her. She's got this, this, uh, this perfume, and we find out it's very costly, and she broke the flask, and she poured it over his head. One of the commentators talks about here that it's not so much that Jesus was anointed with oil, he's drenched with it. Um, this is kind of like when you're volunteering with teenagers at Falls Creek 
and you go to the junior high dorm at night when they're getting ready to go to the evening service, and you just walk into like a cloud of cologne. I mean, you just walk in there, and it's just, it's everywhere. And so the idea that your friend opens up the bottle of essential oil in a small area, and just the lavender and the peppermint are going everywhere. This is like, this is not just being anointed. He is being drenched with this oil. But watch the language. It's very costly. It's broken, and it's poured out. What's happening there? Can you think of something that is very precious, that becomes broken, and that is then poured out? This feels like pointing to the death of Jesus. Here's Jesus, the one who is so precious, so costly, worth everything, is going to be broken and poured out for us. This becomes a picture of of who Jesus is and, and what he's going to do. But here in this situation, this woman breaks open this flask and she just pours it all out. Now, watch what, how people respond. Watch the response here. Verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This is the very worst of religiosity at this point. <laughs> Think about these religious officials who are standing around, even some of Jesus' disciples standing around, they watch this woman break open this costly perfume and pour it out over Jesus, and what is all they can think of? Man, she wasted that. Like, why did she use that on, on Jesus? Why would she do that? They see the perfume being poured out. They don't see what it means. All they can see is what this woman has done, because watch the next verse. The next verse just makes your blood boil. The next verse makes you mad. For this ointment, they said in verse 5, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, almost a year's worth of wage. I mean, that's a lot of money that this perfume was worth. It could have been sold and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Ladies, let me just make a blanket apology here uh, for a friend was talking to me last week about a mansplaining situation they got into. Um, so uh, let me just make a, just a blanket apology for mansplaining when you have to uh, deal with that. When you have some guy that comes along and, and treats you poorly or acts like you don't know anything or understand anything. You get the feeling in this verse, the guys that were at this meal, they would have been great on social media. Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, the idea that they would see something like this. And they wouldn't see the good that was happening, but they would scold this woman who is seeking to do a good thing for Jesus. Um, it just makes you angry when, when you read a verse like this, that they don't, they don't see what's happening. And they claim, what do they claim? They said it could have been sold and given to the poor. Do you think they really care about the poor in this situation? No, we're going to find out. They really don't know. This, this is just a cover. If we're not careful in politics and religion, people who are in poverty... They can become projects and not people. They can be used for our own agendas and not ultimately caring for the person who's in that situation. And it feels like that's what's going on here. So what happens in the next verse? Jesus said in verse six, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Teenage guys, hear me out on this. Watch what Jesus does in this situation. Here's this lady who is just being treated in a really disrespectful way in this situation. These, these guys don't understand what she's doing. What does Jesus do here? He steps in and he protects her, but at the same time he values her. 
And, and that balance is so crucial because, guys, there is no embarrassment in just stepping up as a man and saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to care for you. You're not going to be treated that way while I'm here. And that is good. And teenage guys, mark that, do that. At the same time, though, she's not just like this weak damsel in distress. She is valued. Jesus says that what she has done is good. It's beautiful. And that ability to simultaneously say, I value you. What you're doing is good, and I will be there to protect you and care for you. That's the response that we're looking for in this situation. Jesus values who this woman is and what she's been called to do. Then, what does he say? He turns it around the next verse in verse 8. Or, sorry, verse 7. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, Jesus says. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus is picking up this reference from Deuteronomy chapter 15, and he's saying, caring for the poor, that's good. I'm, I'm all in favor. And it's almost like Jesus is, uh, he's rebuking them a little bit at this point, because if you go back and you read Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says if we're being faithful to God's law, there shouldn't be poor people around us. <laughs> and because Jesus is saying, you have plenty of poor people to care for around you, Therefore, you haven't been doing what you're supposed to be doing. So he's rebuking them at the same time as saying, you're always going to have people to care for, but you won't always have me here. What's Jesus done? Think about the two parts of the commandments that were given a couple of chapters ago. What are the two main ideas? Love God and love others. Love God, love others. Jesus says it's good to love others. It's good to care for the poor. But what is he doing? He is elevating himself in this situation to the place of God. Primarily, love God first, and then when you truly love God, it will drive you to love others. Jesus is telling us something in this situation about who he is and, and what he's come to do. As we truly love God, it's going to drive us to love other people around us. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. There are so many neat connections between this woman's story in Mark chapter 14 and the widow at the end of Mark 12. In both situations, the widow at the end of Mark 12 and this woman in, in Mark chapter 14, you have an anonymous woman who the men who are looking on don't understand the significance of what she's doing, but in both cases, Jesus values this woman and, and what she brings and what she's doing. I love this quote up here from one of the commentaries. No gift, even a dollar is meaningless, and no gift, even a year's salary is wasted when they're given to the work of God. You may be here and say, I would love to do more, I would, it, but it just doesn't matter. Like, if I were to give, I have so little to give, it wouldn't make any difference. And the word of God says, no, it does matter. It does matter because you're giving from what you have. You're doing what you can. And you may be saying, I have so much to give. I don't want to waste it on the things of God. And Jesus is saying, it's not a waste. It's not a waste at all. When you're giving it to the kingdom of God, to his purposes. Verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And, and this verse is why I wanted Jack to uh, give us Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, because Jesus is tying back in to the beginning of the gospel on purpose right here. Truly I say, 
wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the good news of Jesus goes forward in the whole world, what she has done, her focus on Jesus' death and burial, and also her devotion to Jesus, what she's done, who she is, that is going to be told in memory of her. What she has done is not wasted because her life, her witness, moves forward the gospel. You're like, oh man, that's really powerful. Then look in verse 10. I hate to tell you, but we're back on the other side of the sandwich in verse 10. It, it turns and goes the other way. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Ha! All of a sudden, before, they didn't have enough money to give to the poor, and now, all of a sudden, they have plenty of money to give to Judas in order to betray Jesus, to give him the money and promise to give it to him, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Point number one today, as you think about the perfume meal, a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. Write it down, take it to the bank, let it guide you. A life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. I love it how, uh, I love how Dr. Thomas, our president at OBU, I just came back from meetings at OBU this week, so I'm hyped up about Oklahoma Baptist University, but one of the things that Dr. Thomas says is we live all of life, all for Jesus. You could hear me say a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted, and you say, well, I don't want to give all my money and all my time to the church. It's not what we're talking about. We are talking about a life devoted to Jesus, to the gospel going forward, to proclaiming, telling the good news of Jesus, and then displaying it, showing it to people through, through how we live. Because if we're not careful, people can look at our lives as followers of Jesus and say, why would you waste your life on that? Why would you waste your life doing this? Teenagers, I come back around to you guys. I'm going to move on to the adults in a second, but coming back around to you guys. Somebody could look at your life as a teenager. Your friends could look at your life and say, why would you waste your teenage years, why would you waste your teenage years living for Jesus when you could be experimenting with sin and living it up and then you can do the Jesus thing later? Can I tell you right now, your teenage years devoted to Jesus are never wasted. Absolutely never wasted. You could talk to you could talk to adults in the room who weren't following Jesus when they were teenagers or college students, and they would look back at those years, not excited that they lived it up, but, but frustrated and sad that they wasted those years when they could have been devoting themselves to the Lord. Your teenage years devoted to Jesus are never wasted. Adults, you can be going through life, and maybe you're not making as much money as everybody else. Maybe family demands are, are taking up a lot of your time, or maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a time of singleness. Maybe it's a, a season of singleness, or maybe a call to a lifetime of singleness, and other people can look at your life and say, why are you wasting your life like that? Can I tell you, a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. When you are showing up to work and honoring the Lord, when you are honoring the Lord in your singleness, when you are honoring the Lord with your family, a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. Senior adults, when you get to the end of your life and you say, I'm gonna keep following Jesus to the very end. I'm gonna give him everything I have. And other people can look around at your life, senior adults, and say, why aren't you just taking it easy? Why aren't you just living for yourself? 
Because a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. Why? Why is that the case? Because Jesus is able to take what we give and multiply it into so much more. Because Jesus tells us that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will actually find life. That when you devote your life fully to Jesus, you don't run out of life, you actually find more life. Follow me on this. When you waste your life on the things of God, you are not truly wasting your life. You are finding what is actually true life to begin with. When we do those things. Now, let me say one more thing before we move on to the next verse. You may be at a place in life where you look back and you're filled with a lot of guilt because you feel like, man, I've wasted a lot of my past. I've wasted a lot of what I've done in life. One of the most powerful things about the gospel is because of the power of Jesus, God never wastes any of our experiences. Because of the gospel of Jesus, God is able to take the brokenness and pain of your past and he is able to use it in beautiful ways going forward. So you can look back at your life and have all of this guilt and frustration of, man, why did I waste those years? Can I tell you that because of Jesus, those years are not wasted? He will redeem those and use those in ways that go beyond anything that you could ever imagine when we devote our future to him, when we give ourselves fully to him. This is not about just trying to always do more in life. This is about where is my life focused? We don't know for sure, okay? We don't know for sure, but if you put the four gospels together, there's a good chance that this woman who breaks open this bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus, there's a good, good, good chance that this is Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus. If you put the pieces together, there's a good chance this woman in this story is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now you might remember in Luke chapter 10, there's Mary and Martha. What's Martha doing in that story in Luke chapter 10? Like she's running around super busy, making sure all the church things are taken care of, making sure all the house things are taken care of. What does Mary do in that story? She just sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching, wanting to be in his presence. A life devoted to Jesus doesn't always mean a life that's super busy. It may mean a life where you're just sitting in the joy and the rest and the peace that Jesus provides. And you're saying, I know he gives us. I trust him. I give my life to him. Let me say it one more time so we don't miss it. <laughs> a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. And we know that these verses are meant to point us to the cross because that's where we find life. Look at the next verse, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, okay? We're moving now toward the second meal. We had the perfume meal. Now we're moving to the Passover meal. The first meal was primarily with outsiders. The second meal was primarily with Jesus' insiders, with his disciples. So the Passover meal, the time when the Passover lambs were sacrificed, Jesus is going to tie the sacrifice of these lambs to his own death, to his own sacrifice. Middle of verse 12. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room 
furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I just want to make a connection for you. If these verses sound semi-familiar, it's because they sound very familiar to the preparations that Jesus made when he was going to come into the city on the donkey. How he's sending his disciples ahead of time to go and make sure everything is set up and they go and they find it exactly how it's prepared. Why does Mark repeat this again? He wants you to know that what is happening to Jesus is not an accident. Jesus is not come caught up in some sort of political scheming. Jesus is not at the mercy of these religious leaders who have turned against him. Everything that is happening in this story is happening because it is going according to God's plans. What's happening is not an accident. This is God's plan from before the foundation of the world, and this is going to be carried out to the cross. Verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating... Kids, again, just because Jesus reclined at the table to eat does not mean you can, okay? <laughs> you go home and tell your parents, hey, Jesus laid down when he was eating. It must be okay. That's just how they ate at that time, okay? Sit up and eat your food. Dip up all your ranch and ketchup, all right? <laughs> Make sure you're doing that. Here they are. Here's another meal. Jesus reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The exact opposite of what that woman did when she poured out the perfume. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 18. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Now Jesus at this point, he is pushing us quickly toward the cross. And he wants them to understand the connection between the Passover and his own death. And he wants them to understand the meaning of his death, that here he is giving his life for them. He is the one that because of his death, they will be able to find true life. And the language there, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. And then what is our response? What is our only response? To receive. To take. Now, if you're here this morning, and you are not a Christian, you're here out of respect for family or friends, you're just, you want to know more about Jesus, but you're still not sure that you really want to devote your life to Jesus. Number one, I want this to always be a place that you can come and learn about the Bible, be encouraged, ask questions. But let me say that this verse right here should be the greatest news you've ever heard in your life, okay? We spend thousands and thousands of dollars, we spend all this energy in life trying to get our lives together. <laughs> I mean, how often do we say, I just need to get my life together, I need to pull myself up, I need, I need to get things figured out? The message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, is that Jesus has done everything and provided everything so that you could experience salvation, so that our sins and the reality of death is dealt with. And what is our only job? What, what is the call of Christianity? What are we called to do? 
just to receive that. You don't have to get your life together on your own. In fact, we can't get our lives together on our own. You don't have to give a certain amount of money. You don't have to church, attend church a certain number of times. You don't have to go through a certain number of religious observances. What is our call that Jesus says? Jesus says to these disciples, I have given everything. I've given my life. Just take, eat, trust, believe, receive what I've done for you. Verse 23, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now at this point in your Bible, the whole like, it's almost like the Bible should be like forced to flip back to the Old Testament because when you see that language like blood of the covenant poured out for you, all of your Old Testament alarm bells are going off. Let me show you three verses up there. Oh, perfect, they're up there. The three verses that it connects back to. Exodus chapter 12, so the blood of the Passover lamb, we've got that connection. We have Exodus chapter 24, when Moses is establishing the covenant with the people, and he takes the blood, and I know this is strange language, but he takes the blood, and he sprinkles it on the people, and they experience what it is to receive another's blood that makes you clean, that makes you part of the people of God. And then Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, when you go back and, and read those chapters about the suffering servant who will come and give his life, will pour out his life for the salvation of many, Jesus is fulfilling all of that. What God has promised for his people to rescue them from sin and death, all of those promises are coming true in Jesus. And Jesus wants his disciples to see, follow me, receive me, understand that I've come to give you life and salvation. Finally, verse 25, our last verse for today. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. At the very moment that Jesus is pointing them toward his death, what's he doing at the exact same time? He's pointing them beyond his death. Like, this is so cool what he's doing here. He is saying, I'm gonna give my life for you, I'm giving my body and my blood for you, and in me you're going to find life. And at the exact same moment, he says, and my death will not be the end of the story. Because one day, we will celebrate this new in the kingdom of God. One day, death will be no more. And at the same time that we're thinking about God's work in our life right now, he reminds us, and I will be at work in your life for all of eternity. Meal number two. Meal number one was the perfume, a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. Meal number two, the Passover meal, the death of Jesus brings life and hope. That we would know that this is God's plan. This is God's plan for salvation. This is the way to experience rescue from sin and death. That it means life now and life forever. And that our call is just to trust, to receive, to believe, to say, this is where my hope is found. This is who I'm going to devote my life to because only in him do I find true life and salvation. Now the question is, if you're trying to think of a way to help the people in the early church remember the death of Jesus and make sure they're devoting themselves to Jesus, what would be a good way to do that? Probably having another meal, right? <laughs> Probably having another meal. 
These last suppers of Jesus, they feed directly into what it means for us as Christians to take of the Lord's Supper, to come to this time of worship. Because what are we doing with the Lord's Supper? We are remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We're taking that, and at the same time, we are rededicating ourselves to what it means to follow Jesus, to devote ourselves to him. If you're here this morning, and you are a follower of Jesus, when we come to this time of worship, you're looking to the past and remembering what Jesus has done for you, and at the same time, you're looking to the future and saying, I know there's so much more to come, and I want to devote myself fully to him. I grew up in a church tradition, small, rural, Southern Baptist church, where one of the terms that we would use in that church sometimes is that you would walk to the front of the church at the end of the service and you would rededicate your life to Jesus. That may be language that you're familiar to that sometime you get far away from the Lord and, and you would come back and you would walk to the front and tell the pastor you want to rededicate your life to the Lord. Let me tell you an incredible thing about how the New Testament is put together. The way the New Testament is put together is God has given us a built-in way to rededicate ourselves to the Lord, and it's called the Lord's Supper. That this is a gift from him that when we come and we take of the bread, when we take of the juice, it may have been a long time since you were in church and took of the Lord's Supper, and you say this morning, I want to rededicate myself to the Lord. I want to remember who he is, what he's done for me, and how I want to live my life fully for him. This is the opportunity. This is the opportunity to do that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that taking of this bread and this, and this juice, it's not what makes you a follower of Jesus. It's, it's not a ritual that you go through and then immediately become a Christian. This morning, if you're not a Christian, this morning, the opportunity you have is just to think about God's work in your life. What is my life devoted to? God, I don't wanna waste my life. What, what is my life given to? And consider what it means to give yourself fully to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you have questions about faith, as soon as we've seen our final psalm this morning, I'll be right here at the front. I want to talk with you. My email address was up there on the screen just a few minutes ago, owen at emmausokc.org. If you are here this morning and you have questions about faith, please reach out to me. I'd love to tell you what it means to devote your life fully to the Lord. Let's pray together, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. God, thank you for this incredible story um, from Mark chapter 14 about this woman who gives herself fully to the Lord, fully to Jesus. God, as we think about our lives, we don't want to waste our lives. And God, I pray that you would remind the teenagers who are here this morning, all the way to the senior adults, God, you would remind us that a life devoted to Jesus is never wasted. And the reason we have that life is because Jesus gave his life for us. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have true life and true hope. God, thank you for people here, here this morning. And even though they're not yet followers of Jesus, they have questions and want to know more. God, continue to move them to the point that they would simply receive and, and trust and who Jesus is and what he has done. God, help us to use this time of worship right now to rededicate ourselves to you, to remember who you are and what you've done. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.